0: Welcome to Radar. This program can be heard at thevinyldistrict.com or anywhere fine podcasts are found. Here is your host, Evan Toth. Sure, there's Detroit's Motown, Los Angeles's famed music scene, and we all know about the great records that were recorded and produced in New York City. However, during a certain special period of time in the 1970s, Philadelphia reigned supreme. Philadelphia International Records was founded in 1971 by songwriting and production team Kenneth Gamble and Leon Huff and their partner Tom Bell. During their heyday, the label produced 170 gold and platinum records, many of which still remain radio mainstays. Philadelphia International had its signature sound, slick and professional, full of angelic voices, lush strings, and solid bass, which was recorded at Philly's famed Sigma Sound Studios. Two of the men who were behind the mixing board during many of these sessions were Arthur Stoppy and Jim Gallagher. They both joined me for this episode to discuss two beautiful box sets recently released by United Soul and Philadelphia International Records. The first is The Sound of Philadelphia, Volume 1, Get On Board the Soul Train. And the second is The Sound of Philadelphia, Volume 2, Satisfaction Guaranteed. Arthur and Jim let us in on some secrets related to these historic records, how they really feel about analog and digital recordings, and what was in the water in Philadelphia during the 1970s where all of this musical magic was allowed to happen. I don't know if you're hungry, But this episode might be served up best with your neighborhood's finest cheesesteak. Go ahead and order. Just hit pause first. We'll wait here. We're here. We're talking about The Sound of Philadelphia. The Philadelphia International Records has released uh, two box sets. It seems as though there's plans for several other box sets, but uh, they got a a quick big start uh i'll i'll have to take some pictures of these and uh if we do a lot of video with this we'll intersperse it but um there you go you have yours and i have mine and uh so i've got some i think i have another one over there okay and you've got him over there so i thought maybe you both could you know just kind of introduce yourselves and um you know tell us about your individual the way that you came individually to philadelphia international um arthur you want to want to start with you arthur stop am i pronouncing your last stop. stoppy
1: stoppy stoppy
0: see I, yes. I, I my brain wanted to say stoppy but then i said no i'm gonna say stop and he's
1: gonna say it's just stop stop it in 1973 um at the, the very tender age of 20 i had just turned 20 uh, I got a job as uh, an assistant engineer at Sigma Sound in Philadelphia. Um, this was like one of two things I I wanted to do. You know, it was, the other one was photography, which I actually did for a year. But I figured I could always do that on my own. But if I really wanted to work at a recording studio, I needed to work in a recording studio. Right. And, uh, you know, pretty much Sigma was the place I'd been kind of I don't know if you want to call it stalking them almost like for like a year or two beforehand. And, uh, you know, 1973, like the whole sound of Philly thing had pretty much like was breaking out big, at like the year or so before, like 72, maybe in fact, the 71 I mean, granted, you know, Sigma was doing all those other things going back to day one in 1968. Right. And of course, Joe Tarsi, the owner, was doing stuff at Cameo Parkway going even further back. So I got a job there as an assistant engineer, um, you know, hung in there uh, for, uh, you know, a couple of years before I started like doing some engineering on my own Um Some of the first of the stuff, and this is kind of obscure (laughs) in a way, was um, Philly International because they were distributed by Columbia. And early 70s was the whole big thing with Quad. Right. And and so, you know, like uh, Columbia wanted Quad products. So we were mixing a lot of those albums in Quad for them, you know, along with the, the, the stereo versions. And, uh, you know, some of my first engineering was to get it to do a couple of those. Um, I got to do the the quad of Wake Up Everybody, uh, the album, and and the quad of the MFSB um, um, Philadelphia Freedom album. I also got to do the tail end of, um, I'm trying to think which OJ's record this was. It was the one with I Love Music on it. And somehow or other, I got to do the hit no uh, one of the other engineers had been like did the whole family reunion family reunion right that was the album and uh, some of that stuff just recently came out on sacd there's a british label called dutton vocalion that likes to license all that stuff and they, they licensed all those quad mixes or most of them and and they have them out now a couple of months after i started there uh one morning uh there was a knock on the door and it was jim i you know i went to the door and you know let him in i talked to him a little bit because he was looking you know also to get a job at sigma and um i you know so i you know told him like yeah yeah, you need to talk to terry tripp the general manager and this and that and of course next thing i know a few days later he's working there uh So obviously that worked, but, uh, you know, again, like started, you know, doing engineering, you know, starting late 75 into 76, um, around 1977, I took over Tom Moulton as a client who like kept me busy most of the week for several years. Um, you know, Tom Moulton, of course, being one of those first and, um, you know, pretty much like, other than Joe Tarcia, the founder and owner, I was probably there the longest of any other employee. I didn't leave. You know, I was there in one shape or fashion until early 1998. So that was just wow. like a couple months short of 25 years. Yeah. I don't know. I guess that pretty much brings us up to date. But uh, oh, cool. again, I was around Sigma in one shape, way, shape, or fashion for like uh, just about 25 years.
0: Very cool. Well, Jim, why don't you tell us what happened just before you showed up at the door for Arthur to let you into the studio to find out more about getting the job? What was happening right before you, right before that?
2: Then I had um, I had lived. Yeah, I I, I went to college and, uh, you know, like uh, first few years of college. And then I dropped out and moved to Philadelphia. I was from upstate PA, and I moved to Philadelphia. I'd only been in Philly a short time, and at one point along the way, I had a number of different jobs. One of which I, I was an assistant manager of a warehouse for health foods. So I became a healthful eater very young. All right. Anyway, the the the, the staff was almost all African Americans, and we used to listen to local WDAS radio. You know, we listened to r music all day long in the, in the in the uh, warehouse and you know and i was really into that i loved motown and stacks i loved all that all those uh, kinds of records and then you know i started hearing all these great sound of philly records and one in particular knocked me out it was i'll be around by the spinners i really loved it i went right out and bought it like that weekend you know it was a little mom and pop record store down the street from where i lived in southwest philly great track. i came home with it yeah it's a great track and i came home with it i'm walking down the street towards my house and i read on the label uh, produced, arranged, and conducted by Tom Bell, recorded at Sigma Sound Studios, Philadelphia, PA. And I was so naive, you know, I was in, uh, going to Temple at night to finish my degree. But I was so naive, I thought, like, oh my God, what? they they made this right here in, where I live, I live in the city where they made this great record. I, I want to do that. That's what I want to do, you know, because I've been studying media. You know, I've been studying filmmaking. And I had taken basic courses in audio and filmmaking, of course, but that's all I knew. So I immediately went to my uh, uh, manual typewriter and typed up a resume. Mm -hmm. And by the way, I had a cousin who had given me a reel-to-reel quarter track tape recorder at one point with a couple of mics and stereo input. And then I traded for a little Sony mixer that had like six ends, and I got some more mics. And I used to go and record my friend's rock and roll bands. And I just learning on the job in in, in rehearsal spaces and in a live concert in them. One, one concert in the basement of a church and stuff. And, you know, and I just was learning how to do it. Good way to learn. It was fun. And uh, I still have those recordings, by the way, which is really amazing. Anyway, uh, I typed this all up. I go to the yellow pages of the you know Philadelphia phone book. And I look for every recording studio in town, including Sigma, of course. The main goal, of course, was Sigma. But I went around to every other studio in town with my little Xerox copies of my resume and put them in. The first job I actually got was at a place called 919 Sound, which was at 919 North Broad Street up near Temple Campus, where um, there was a distribution center for records that got to all the mom and pops and other stores in the city. Mm-hmm. And upstairs, there was a studio, an a track room. And once upon a time, going further back, going like pre-Sigma, this was a re- pretty legitimate studio. A lot of people made records there, you know, during the, the Cameo Parkway year, era. Right. You know, and not far away was a uh, Frank Virtue's place, which was also a pretty legitimate place that made a lot of records during that time. So, I go there, I get a job there, I drop out of school, lose my scholarship to take this job, <laughs> and I'm working. And really, what they hired me for was to do their tape library. Ah. And I was there for about two weeks, and during that time, the guy who was uh, running the engineer who was running the studio at the time, Mike Apsey, uh took me aside. And he could see that I, how you know how enthusiastic I was, and he said. Uh, you're, you're really into this. You really want to do this like for real, don't you? And I said, yeah. He said, So he took me aside so, a couple of nights after working on the tape library all day and really taught me the ropes about overdubbing, mic placement, general, you know, real knowledge of studio work. Very cool. Which, which is really nice of him. Yeah. And uh, and because he knew, as naive Jim did not know, that in two weeks when his library, uh, tape library was fa- finished, I was out of. I was going to be out of a job. Right, of course, was the case. So, like two weeks later, I'm out on the street going. I I, I blew a scholarship, but I was able to go back to my manual typewriter, and put nine nineteen sound right at the top, right, and say how long I'd worked there. But I said I had worked there, and so I took it around again to all the students in town, including in first stop Sigma Sound, and it just so happened at that time it was right as Arthur will will we'll probably talk about later when they expanded this is right when they expanded from one room to the second large room the studio two was finally coming online and they needed to double their staff right so it just happened to walk in the door when harry and joe were about to hire more engineers and at least a second another second engineer was needed uh some of the previous assistant engineers were starting to move up don murray and jay mark were starting to get first engineering dates and Arthur and I and Michael Hutchinson and Dirk Devlin were the the four other engineers for the two sessions two studios all week so we were the four main assistants at at that point in time and it was uh, was
1: like the first it was the first studio to assistant and and, you know because they had really just opened that room literally a month or two beforehand yeah and you know that took off and it was like okay we need more people
2: and arthur you know arthur let me in the door and uh it's funny i went to the interview with harry <laughs> and i've always thought and i talked to him about this when he just before when he retired and we went out to lunch one day and i asked him flat out about it and i said i, I always thought that i went into that interview with an attitude like hey man this is like a real job, you know, or am I gonna get like kicked out of my ear in two weeks again? And and he was like, no, this is a real job, kid. <laughs> what are you talking about? Right. Luckily for me, it was a real job, and I took it. Of course, I got it. And um, ten years later, uh, it was I, I was just that was when I left. I, I left after ten years. Arthur did. Arthur was there longer than anybody except Joe Yeah, I believe. And uh, I was there ten. So, but I was there from 72, 73, whenever it was, 73, right? Uh, spring of 73, just after Arthur started, a couple months. And then I went to, um, I left around Christmas of uh, 82, 83, you know, January of 83. I mean, I can't remember if I came back after the holidays or not. Right. That was around when I left and I moved to California. I got to work with Stevie Wonder and Michael Cimbello on a project late in my career at Sigma in the last year I was there. And both of them offered me work in L.A. as a first engineer. Okay. And, and and I could see, you know, all things have an arc. Right. And I could see that Sigma was starting to slide down here after the big heyday of the 70s and the 80s uh, into the early 80s. And it was, you know, the recession right around the time Thriller came along and saved the industry. Right. And that year is the year that I left Sigma and went out to L.A., in fact, I was nominated for a Grammy for a record I, the record I did with Michael cimbelo out there, the Boston Nova Hotel album, his solo album, which had the song Maniac on it. Yeah, yeah. and um, you know, I go to the Grammys for the first time and uh, like I'm a nominee. is like exciting. Exactly. I run into BB King there. It was the first session I ever did at Sigma. Oh, no kidding! BB King session. I run into him at the get at the door, uh, and uh, just a lot of great stories. But. You know, I'm sitting there thinking, I can't have a shot at a Grammy shot again. Of course, it was the year of Thriller, <laughs> and I did not win, of
0: course. MJ beat out Michael Cimbello.
2: Yeah, well, Gram, you know, this is the way it was. Cimbello's record was nominated for something like eight or nine Grammys, wow. which any other year would have been a big freaking deal. Yeah. But, you know, Thriller was nominated for 14 and one nine. You right. know, I mean, it was something like that. So, yeah, you know, I didn't have
0: right. a chance against uh, Thriller. Well, cool. Well, uh, back to your uh, uh, back to the trip down memory lane. I, I went through Discogs and I checked, you know, what I have here in my library with your guys' names on it. Aside from Philadelphia International, we we to oh, yeah. talk about that, but but just some of my favorite records that came up from both of you. Uh, Jim goes first. Jim, Gabor Jabo's oh, Gabor, yeah, uh, Night Flight. I love this record.
2: Bunny Sigler Probably produced that. that. Yep.
0: This is a great, great album. It's one of my favorites, and I, and I love him. It's a lot
2: party. of fun. I have, a, I have a great story that goes with that. But go ahead. What else you got there? Of
0: course, uh, Pick of the Litter. I have two of them.
2: Yep. Was Pick of the Litter and what was the previous album by the Spinners? Uh, the one after Mighty Love, the one, what was it called? I forget. But we did Pick of the Litter and the previous album simultaneously. We did like two records all at once. Oh wow, that's
0: signed. Well, no, you can see. I don't think so. You can see that you you were able to uh, pull out the figures here, the guys, and oh, I, I guess you could hang them on your fridge or whatever. But you're oh, right; wow. they are. So, I, that's not. can't be a real. That can't be a real. Situation. No, it might have been part, part of the. the part of the
2: package, but, but one know, is
0: one was some kid uh, pulled the guys off, and the other one is uh, is see. normal. And Arthur, you show up. You show up in a couple places. Oh, here's a good one, Arthur. You ready? Are you ready, Arthur? I'm ready. <laughs> I'm sure, I know. I know
2: what now, it is. I know what it is. You,
0: oh, you're not. You're not gonna guess this. No way. Oh, no. Claudia Barry. Claudia oh. Barry now claudia barry's interesting because she had a uh i'm this this show will be on wfdu and when i started there which is almost 20 years ago for myself she was doing a morning show and uh it was like an r&b soul show so i used to go in and do the 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 weather and stuff in the morning. i say hey good morning claudia and everybody would say you know she was like a big deal in the 70s you know uh but so here she is so you're you're on this one
1: right right Right. I th- I think that was something I like that was one of those molten mixes, I think.
2: Probably. salsol yeah.
1: Uh
0: yes, salsol It's uh produced by Jurgen Cordelsetch.
1: Wow. Jurgen Cordelich or I think Kordelich. it's Cordelich. Right.
0: And you're right. right. a Tom molten mix, a Tom molten mix. Absolutely. That would have been I thought
2: you were going to pull up the um 1978 you're out, but, by the, but way. the English guy Arthur, um,
1: the English guy. Well, they, well, I, I I got to do with Moulton taking over the production. Um, the Robert Palmer double Robert Palmer, fun yeah. album. Cool. Um, yeah, half of it was already. Yeah, half of it was already cut in New York, and um, and they had had this sort of interesting thing. Like like he uh, Palmer had been working with this uh british engineer phil brown that he'd been working with since i think his first solo album and um i i think there was some sort of little impasse with trying to get the rest of the album done or or to the satisfaction of chris blackwell and Moulton had just done uh grace jones i did like i engineered like the first three grace jones albums and based on the grace jones they got tom involved in the robert palmer project um it's interesting phil brown has a book out called are we still rolling which is actually a pretty good book as you know it's it's one another one of these many engineer memoirs and all that i mentioned it but not by name because there's a whole little thing in there where he's like going back and forth with with Palmer about like Molten taking over the album and all that. But um, yeah, I, I, we, we recorded the second half of that album and mixed it all in Philly at Sigma. You
2: know, there are many, many other albums that we have both worked on. There's so many outside of PIR. I thought you might've pulled one of my Michael Henderson albums, you know, Michael came to Philly to do the in the nighttime album. To finish it. He cut the tracks in Detroit. And I remember as we worked on it, he worked with every engineer on the staff and then he ended up settling with me and he, I got to mix it. And I can remember working on these really terribly recorded drum tracks uh. from, from Detroit and a number of different studios and each studio was bad in a different way. <laughs>
0: right right right
2: and i remember thinking as i was overdubbing on i'm like oh my god i I pity the fool that has to mix this stuff and it ended up being me and i was really proud of how how i pulled it together in the end but that's what we did at signal and and arthur can know but no one better than than all the stuff that molten brought in jay and arthur mixed for molten for years and arthur the better the larger percentages I'm, i'm sure and and you never knew in fact it inspired the the bad nature of a lot of tapes coming in from other studios from all around the world, mm. not just New York or L.A., but all around the world, um, inspired Joe Tarcy to form SPARS. What does that stand for? Arthur? Spars- the, Society,
1: right? the Society of Professional Audio Recording
2: Studios. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, to try and get a standardization so right. that when a tape showed up at your door... We know exactly what you know. Operating level, the machine was operating, whether it was Dolby or not. Blah 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 blah. All the the technical details that you really needed to play the tape back properly. Right, and and I know a to lot of that at least. You know.
0: And a lot of engineers nowadays, they'll get these uh, things that were recorded on an iPhone or something, and uh, right. say, "What it? What is this? Do you want me to put this into the? Uh, try to figure out how to get this into
2: the mix? You but, you somehow make this sound good?" Hmm, right,
0: right. Fuck with that. Um, and well, two of- others uh, th- you kind of blew oh, up my yeah. spot with this this is this is right great- right you're here you're on here and and here's
1: one that, that's about- actually the first album that i did um most of the engineering on myself oh. or, or was at least present for uh like all of it in some way shape or fashion there were a couple of singles that were um recorded in depending on who you talk to either london or paris uh that Moulton ended up mixing and 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 then that you know turned into an album mm. and you know we recorded the rest of the album uh you know there there at sigma and um that was probably the first project that i pretty much did you know i, I had some role in just about for the whole thing um again like you know, engineering like half of it and, and more, more than half of it actually at all. But yeah, that that's 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 an early one.
0: And this is what I love this album and I, I bought it. I will admit I only bought this for the cover, this next one, Arthur. But um, uh, once I put it in, I, I really, I put it on. I really loved it. And I've learned that it does have a bit of a, a following nowadays. Maybe it's because of the cover, but it's a really cool record. CJ and company, Devil's
1: Gun. There's the devil in his right. gun. Well, the Moulton did he started out just remixing a lot of uh um you know projects that other people had had recorded. Mm-hmm. And um just backing up a little bit with what Jim said, that like, you know, a lot of those early projects were, you know, like really poorly recorded and it was like you know to to mix them was like a real lesson in what not to do right for one thing and then number two was how to to fix it really fix it in the mix right so although i think this was um he i'm trying to think that, that that label out of um detroit that that's on this is on westbound westbound right 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 yeah he did a lot of stuff for westbound and they recorded most of that stuff at a little, well, little. I don't think you know. I don't think it was that little, but a studio called Pack Three in Detroit, which is actually pretty good. Those things were were pretty easy to mix, but I I I I don't know. I might have done dozens of of albums for Westbound where you know they they record them in Detroit and send them off the molten to uh, have us mix it. I mean, at one point I think we were mixing like one of those a week almost.
2: Wow. Uh, wow you know if i may but we talk about first albums and very early work of ours at sigma i'm really proud of one in particular i imagine it'll eventually be on one of these uh box sets and uh it was the first it was really the second album i ever got to mix but it was like the first one i felt like i really had more to do with the whole thing i I recorded a lot of it too i recorded about 80 90 percent of it and then I got to mix of the whole album, and it was Dexter Wanzell's Life on Mars.
0: Which I have, and I, I was running out of time. I wanted to pull that, and I, I have it back here. I was going to show that one to you.
2: Really proud of that as one of my very first efforts as a Sigma engineer, and it was for P.I.R.
0: It's a great record, too, and I remember not – that was another one I bought. I really didn't I know much about it.
2: I spoke with Dexter just a week or so ago, and I, every time I talk to him, I throw him roses about that. I throw roses at him over that record. It's what the, a great,
0: what a great record!
2: The, the love I lost. It was you know, which is by the way, a 12-inch in here, right? Uh, which I really—that was the first thing I listened to because my very first day on the job with Joe Tarsia, my first time ever signed on a session with Joe, was a mixing date, and of course, no one was there in the room, but joe tarcia kenny gamble and me wow and we mixed on that day the love i lost brown melvin and the blue notes and then we mixed two songs that are on the next album on this box set we mixed um put your hands together and now that we found love both by the ojs so we did three songs in one eight hour session yeah. whereas in these days it takes two three days to mix one song you know That's right we, you know they were 16 track in real time and Uh, wow and you know bang and and huge
0: tunes and 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 gargantuan tunes not just three run-of-the-mill tunes you're right nowadays you'd you'd say a song a day you know for some some songwriter guy or something would do a song a day of a mix but you you mixed like three gargantuan tunes in In one one day right take that take that you youngins
2: (laughs) right exactly Um, uh, uh and, so, you know what it but it, it really is a testament to the testimony to is how well recorded they were and well produced they were by kenny and and, and joe i mean <laughs> i'll never forget when we first got our first automated mixing uh, package that was you know on fader automation right and the, our job as assistant engineers at that point then was to write up uh, pictures of the board, you know, there'd be a, an image of the, the the fader module and you just, with no no settings on it, you drew in the settings where each knob was turned for each track. Right. But I remember the first time I knew I was going to have to write up one of Joe Tarsi's mixes, I, I said, well, now I'm going to really look closely at the magic of Joe Tarsi and why he mixes so well. And, you know, and here was the, here was the engineer and you know, it was like. Eh. <laughs> Next one, eh. it was so little. It was like, and you know, immediately struck to home. You know, right. Well, sometimes there'd be some radical stuff depending on what it was, but you know, but the, the, the primary lesson in that was that he recorded it so well in the first place. Right. It barely needed much work done on it in the mix. Didn't have to go crazy. Don't fix it in the mix. If you don't know, if you can get it good when you put it down, when you put it on the tape or when you record it to Pro Tools, if it sounds good going in. You don't have to do much to get it to sound good coming back out. Right.
0: Um, guys, what do you think? What what was the could could these records have been recorded? I mean, I think the answer is yes. Um, but what was the significance of the uh, of this happening in Philadelphia at the time? Of course, it was. Uh, I've been to Philadelphia a few times, and I I really love the city. I'd like to make it back there uh, one of these days. But it's it's got its own brand. It's got its own feel. Philadelphia does. You know, it's not New York. It's not Chicago. It's it's its own Philly thing. What was it that was uh, unique about the relationship? between these records and that town what made it different about being recorded there than across the river here in new jersey
1: sometimes some of the people in philly said well we've always been living in the shadow of new york as far as like a music center goes right and um that alone probably made it, you know, like made people think well we're gonna do our own unique thing here um it, the the scene was like Um, I don't know, a little more laid back, actually a lot more laid back and um, small enough that pretty much everybody knew everybody else. Hmm. I mean, you know, New York is, is just enormous and um, uh, you know, all, all these little regional centers, you know, like, you know, your Muscle Shoals and and your Memphis and all that. And, you know, they, they, somebody should write a book because they all have their own unique kind of, I guess, sociology to the music scene there. There are certain things that like, you know, like, and possibly, I don't want to say coincidentally, but like that, that, that are, are similar, you know, simply because it's people trying to do, the same thing, trying to, uh, solve the same problems, that sort of thing. But again, they all come up with their, their, their own unique, uh, flavor. And, and, and I think, uh, um, you know, again, I think that the thing with Philly, you know, kind of like, you know, living in the shadow of New York was like, well, we're going to do our own little thing here, you know, and, and some of what happened in Philly, probably couldn't have happened in new york it's just too big it's too mm. fast it's too impersonal sometimes and uh, again like here in philly it was like pretty much everyone knew everybody else and like let me put it this way i mean like there generally wasn't such a thing at, at sigma as a closed session i mean you know, meaning like yeah we're not letting anybody in you know right. except for the people working on the session because people were popping in and out of like each other's sessions all the time and and, you know like oh yeah come come here What we're working on or you know just come here to hang out for a little while that sort of thing so um yeah that did happen yeah i think again it was just uh it was a little more i don't know for i have a better term maybe personal Hmm. um you know just because it was you know on on a you know a smaller scale but at the same time uh, it's like, yeah, well, but we're gonna make some hit records here anyway, right? Uh, kind of thing. So I think that's a lot to do with it. Um, I've thought uh, over the years a couple of times about because, because to tell you the truth, the first some of the first studios I approach. I mean, I actually I think Sigma might have been one of the first ones, but I also like I grabbed the Manhattan phone book and went to every big studio uh, in, in New York City trying to 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 get a job uh before i landed the one at sigma and uh you know think that like okay had i like you know worked for a studio up there um you know things would have been considerably considerably different what i like in the end like to think though was that um you know in philly I got to be, because again, it's a small scene. Everybody knows everybody else. Like got to be what what I guess you would consider, you know, like, you know, a fairly big sized fish in a pretty small pond. Right. As opposed to in New York City, it would have been like, yeah, I'm just another small fish in this huge ocean that is oh,
2: the New right. York Sea.
0: <laughs> right. What about you, Jim? What what why, what made Philly uh,
2: was it the cheesesteaks? I think it was the cheesesteaks. They helped. Actually, we mostly used to run down to the Reading Terminal Market. I was a big fan of Bassett's Ice Cream down there. at but... <laughs> Chinatown. We were literally a block and a half from Chinatown. It got to the point where you know, producers and, and artists would come in, and go send out and get food. Yeah. Often the assistants were running down to Chinatown to get the food. It got to the point where those little containers that, that Asian food comes in, yeah, the little I couldn't, you know, I, I was off Asian food for many years after Singham because it was, you know, it was a lot of it there, a lot of it left over after the session that you never wanted to look at it again. Right. But it wasn't the cheesesteaks as much as it was seriously now. <clears throat> it was a small pond, a small pool, but it was full of incredible talent. Right. Think of all the great artists that came out of Philly. That This this old sound of Philadelphia uh, um, Movement. this whole, this whole thing, not just B.I.R., but all the stuff that Tommy Bell did and all the other people that even came from elsewhere to come to Philly to right. use our, our, our background singers, to use our musicians, to use the rhythm section, use our orchestra. I mean, even when Tom Bell had moved to the West Coast, when he, like, for example, when he did that EP with Elton John, he came back to Philly. He cut the tracks up there in, up in the Seattle area somewhere, but he came back to put the strings and horns on in Philly. Right, right. You know, I mean, the, the, the talent pool of arrangers and, and and great musicians, and it wasn't just the original core, which was phenomenal in and of itself, from these early days of, of Philadelphia International and Tom Bell and everybody else, um, but the like the second generation of rhythm sections that came along, you know, like the, it was Baker Harrison Young in the beginning, but then it was you know, it was uh, you know Charlie Collins or or a keith benson and jimmy williams and jimmy, Dennis yeah, jimmy yeah and you know the late great jimmy williams he played on a record for me not too long ago just not long before he passed but he you know all those guys who came along even as a second wave just like in motown the second and third waves of Motown, right, right. Were incredibly talented people as well and that was true of philly it, it just seemed to be that every time you turned around there was somebody great coming through the door i mean you know think about some of the you incredible talent that we that we saw here and not just the stars i'm talking about the rangers and the writers and and the musicians as engineers what was
0: the what was kind of the corporate direction that you were giving given about the sound of these records um there was such a company sound with uh with philadelphia international it would seem it was you know very coincidental if there wasn't kind of some guidance or formula did you ever was it a good thing was it a bad thing did you ever feel limited or was it uh, were you like wow we have our own sound here and we're we're a part of that
1: well pretty much everyone learned from joe tarsia or someone who was taught by joe tarsia so there was a lot of uh you know of a common approach to things uh you know not that uh um you know there wasn't room to 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 change stuff um you know i went out there and immediately changed the microphones on my own and um (laughs) but but uh well you
0: you guys were young so you weren't like uh you know you weren't stuck in your ways or anything
1: well that you know that's true too i mean you know everybody you know still wants to try to you know create their own little like signature right but uh you know again it was all you know pretty much you know everybody either learned directly from joe tarsia or from someone uh who was you know pretty much taught by joe tarsia or a combination thereof uh you know again and the other thing being that uh you know it was the this you know like a certain bunch of studio musicians, you know, for the rhythm section, for the strings and horns and all that, that was on, um, you know, most of these records. Uh, I have to back up and just, I, I'll tell you a little secret. Cause you know, Jim was mentioning about people coming in from out of town. This is something people probably don't know. Uh, I i don't remember the, the, the name who did this, but somebody um, wanted to at one point in the, in the like, you know, mid late seventies do like a pop record version of the, I love New York song. Oh yeah. I have it. This, uh, the singers on it are the, or the Philly background girls. Yeah. It's you a bit, right? <laughs> yeah, You know, so, so little did they know. Um, hey. you know now it can be told.
2: Yeah. Um, let me, can I add to that, Arthur? Yeah. When, uh, um, when Alan Slutsky, a Philadelphia guy, was involved in the making of the the, uh, the Standing in the Shadows of Motown movie. Ah. He was involved in it. They recorded it in Detroit. They brought it back to Philly. They sweetened it here with all Philly musicians. A number of the people on the stage, even in the show, in Detroit, were Philadelphians. Carla, Carla Benson, one of those three background singers, was there. Um. Uh, and then when they did, uh, you know, they sweetened some of those strings and horns that were added to those rec- to those recordings, and they were all Philly people that they sweetened it on uh, here in town. So, yeah, people have been... No, there
0: it that's is the one so you mean to say here you're 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 breaking open a, a very controversial topic the iconic I love New York, New York right, disco right, version which was so important to me uh, as a kid because it was on all the commercials and uh, you know and I loved New York and my dad worked in the city and I would go there and I would think and I would watch the images on television and go yeah that is it that is so exciting that's exactly how exciting New York City is you're telling me that most of it was by Facebook Philly singers and recorded well. We'll, t- well, it's Tom Moulton mix, as you say. There
2: you go. Right, right. Um, he only mixed in Philly.
0: Mixed in Philly.
1: That's right. Actually, no, he did. He he didn't. He, he for a while he was working with a young um, at Media Sound. Um, oh gosh, why can't I think of his name? He's he's enormous. Um, oh wow.
2: He did do some work
1: in problems. Right, right. But, uh, you know, like he was in Philly
2: every night of the week for. Well, years.
1: eventually it just came down to the, like practically lived down here for like four nights out of the week. Um, you know, then would go back up to New York City.
2: Now you're talking- I'd like to go back and add to what Arthur had already said. And oh. I, as much as I love Joe, I, I've often said about him, that he was of the really greatest engineers that ever pushed a fader, but he couldn't teach his way out of the room. Mm. <laughs> but we all learned by watching him, looking at what he did and looking at how he processed the stuff and where he put the mics and you know we'd set the mics up for him and then sometimes he would just get up and go out and move it two inches and it would make a ridiculous difference in the sound and we would learn from just watching him and working with him and yes Arthur and I were and, and Dirk and Michael uh, were in a really tremendous tremendous position at that time early on when we first started as assistant engineers to not only watch Joe get to work with Joe, but the other three guys that were all, they all learned at his side, but had their own, their own twist. on. so we also got to work with Jay. We also got to work with Carl. We also got to work with uh, Kenny and Don Murray. Eventually a guy came in from outside, uh, you know, all those other people learned at Joe's side uh, pretty much. Jay had learned stuff outside before he came to Sigma, but uh um, but Don I think learned it all right in Philly. And, and you know, and yes, yeah, so, so they were disciplines of Joe's, but they all had their own approaches and we we got to learn from all of them. I can remember thinking about, well, how did my style of recording and mixing come about? It came from uh, osmosis of picking up as much. And what I thought was the best approaches from all of them, mm. not just Joe, but yeah, but Joe was the, the core. He was just the start from it.
0: You know, uh, back to the thumbprint of the sound of a lot of these records, they they were so lush, and you had these big orchestras, and was it, as the mixing uh, engineers, uh, was it um, difficult? Was there a lot of stuff to worry about uh, how you made those? Because, again, they're not run-of-the-mill mixes that were um,
1: taught. And a lot of the sound of that had to do with the reverb. And by today's standards, it's like, it sounds like ridiculously simple what was being d- done yeah but it it was uh and, and and actually it's even something that that joe kind of uh uh borrowed from somebody uh in, in new york city new york city yeah. but um you know
2: the emulator
1: big thing then was like well the the reverb before we had digital reverbs so it's like right. either had like a live chamber which was either like you know good or bad um you know like an actual reverberant room and and then there was this device called an emt which is named for the uh um company that made it it's a german company i I think the emt stands for something along the lines of like uh the german for electrical musical techniques and it's 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 a plate of metal you know that's about maybe four by six feet it's stretched in a frame, you know, and it's thin steel. And, um, you know, it, 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 uh, you know, has like what you would like probably call like a speaker driver on it that you'd like, whatever you wanted to put into reverb, got fed into that. The plate like vibrated, you know, it reflected off the edges of the plate and because the speed of in steel is, uh, like, you know, I don't know, several times faster, at least, than it is in air, like all these reflections would build up into this very natural sounding reverb that was then picked up by, there were a couple of like, you know, again, you would consider them contact microphones on the plate and all that. And uh, one of the secrets, though, was that because the the speed of sound in steel is so fast that like, you know, the kind of, if, if you just use the thing by itself, like the reverb kind of almost ends up like starting almost on top of whatever you're, you're putting it, it on. Exactly. And the, the big thing, and this is the thing that the Joe borrowed from somebody, um, you know, in, in in a New York city studio. And it was like, he saw this happen. Once it was like, Oh my gosh, that's what they're doing, which is you delay the feed into the plate using at the time it would be like, the way you could get a delay would be a tape machine, you know, a three head tape deck where, you know, a guy goes, you you know, you feed it to the record head. It like, you know, the tape moves on down to the play head, you know, which is a couple inches down Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, that, that constitutes the delay and then that gets fed into the plate and it, it just, you know, kind of really opens it up because you can have things in like in reverb, but it's, it's just kind of cleaner because there's that little interval before okay. the, uh, it, you know, it's like a hundred milliseconds or something, uh, before the reverb hits. Uh, there's also a bit of like, these, these plates were kind of like, there's a lot of voodoo in, involved in setting them up in it. Like the, the plate, you know, you know, hung in this metal frame and you had the tension it, you know, the right amount and evenly, um, um you know in order to get the best sound out of it and uh so you know there was a lot about um knowing how to do that uh a, a, another little yes now it can be told stories although i, I think joe uh, tarsi has told this one before was that the first emt plate he got for sigma he bought from a philly radio station because they bought one And somebody didn't read the manual or something. So they didn't know that, like, you know, the the thing was shipped with the plate, not tensioned, because it traveled better that way. And they didn't know to do it. So they said, this thing doesn't really work. And you know, I think Joe said something like that. Well, I'll take that off your hands for like a few hundred bucks. Right. Because the, th- the thing actually cost several thousand dollars right. back then. So, you know, and he's like kind of, I guess, probably like chuckling under his breath. Like, oh, yeah, I had an EMD plate for 500 bucks or whatever he paid for it. And of course, he knew what to do with it to set yeah. it up. And, you know, the rest is history. But um, and but, I got um uh, yeah, a lot of it was the reverb. Right. And i have to add yeah, something to that sandwich.
2: one of our jobs as assistant engineers and it was a thumb it was a, like the worst oh Paul, one of the worst mistakes you could make during a mixing date was that tape recorder that was running and creating that pre-delay you know was a, a, a finite piece of tape it was going to eventually run out and if right. you were in the middle of laying down a, a final mix and that tape ran out and the, and the echoes changed oh man you were in deep deep trouble and that, that was, that was so you were always like rewinding that or flipping it over to make sure it wouldn't run out when you got down to the final real time back in the days of real time mixing, you know, right. A mix was done real time, you know, now you, when you mix today and produce you had bounced the disc, you're going to leave the room, you know, and it just you come back and it's finished, right. It's, it's all digital, but. In those days, everything was real time through the board from one tape, from the big tape, the 16 or the 24 track down through the mixing console with that echo tape running. If it ran out, the echo would change, would would be wrong. And and down to a final stereo and mono tape recorder had recording a final master. And uh, you didn't want to mess that up. That was um, a big deal, making sure you, you didn't let that echo tape run out.
0: Of course, you guys, uh, you guys did all of these uh, albums in, in analog. Um, and then I I, I, I would imagine you both understand very uh, well the digital domain in your in your later careers. You know, a lot of younger artists and uh, studio owners and producers and, and mixing engineers uh, love tape and analog nowadays, again, in the 21st century, what's your uh, just curious what each of your individual feelings are? Are you digital guys? Would you do you understand why people would like to uh, go back to analog or are you like i I don't want to ever see a razor blade and a piece of tape ever
1: again you know uh, (laughs) what what are your what are your feelings uh just personally i'm curious well let me go first uh because i'm going to be the opinionated one about this i think there's a lot of misplaced nostalgia associated with analog and um you know like people think that the record sounded so great because it was analog and and and, and you know that and that it somehow or other you know they think it's going to contribute to their record now being a hit right. and basically what it comes down to is that actually back then you know i mean there were a lot of great sounding records made kind of in spite of the equipment that we had right rather than because of it i mean you know you really had to be kind of on top of things because uh you know um you know you lose track of the little details here and there and analog and you know think that things can start to deteriorate and and that sort of thing so i think there's a lot of misplaced nostalgia there um you know so um yeah i mean the other thing is like you know i mean digital wasn't perfect when it came in, it's, it's gotten much better in the, in this, like, I don't know, it's probably getting close to 40 years since it became, yeah. you know, part of, uh, you know, life in the studio. Um, and, um, but, uh, again, there's also good digital and bad digital. And once again, if you kind of lose track of, of a lot of little, the details and things like that, uh, you know, you, you can not get as good a sound as you could. Um, but uh, you know, again, I, I I don't really have any like desire to go back to analog, other than. As, as kind of again like kind of a, like a uh, like exercise in nostalgia. I mean to go like okay let's record this twenty four track analog and then mix it and analog and all that just to kind of prove that I could do it. And, you know right. it's just kind of like the, my the, what you know if you said I do only a lot of photography now, and it's just sort of like yeah I have no desire to go back to film other than to prove that I could still do it. Right. You know just for the kind of a n- sheer nostalgia of it if I really want to get the job done and, and get a, uh, like, and do a good job on it, like I'm going to do it digital. But, uh, you know, again, it's just like, there's good digital, there's bad digital. And you 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 just need to
2: know the difference. And I'd like like to add that the earlier you go back to the beginnings of the digital formats, the worse they were, right. You know, their resolutions weren't as good, et cetera, bit rates, et cetera. And I remember when the very early earliest days of digital, I was like, no, this is, not cutting it for me. Uh, I, I remember, you know, right when I left Sigma, is was right when that started to come around. And uh, I was out in LA and I was working with Stevie Wonder. And at one point I used to call him Captain Digits because he went, when digital came along, he didn't want to, you know, ever go back. He did not want to look back at, at analog at all, ever. He right. wanted to go all digital all the time. And, and, and I was like, you know, and I remember mixing something for him out there and running an analog, high speed, big fat piece of tape, highest quality analog tape simultaneously with a brand new digital uh, processing that he had there very early to converters, and um, playing it back and saying, listen to the bottom, Steve, the low end just wasn't as, you know, it's just not a, a true big fat wave. It wasn't as good because it was still very primitive. Digital was still very primitive at the time. And I remember him saying to me, no, nope, I don't care. I'm going with that. I'll fix that in the mastering and uh, I'll, I'll, I'll pull that bottom together in the mastering but and then i finally said to him why why is it that you don't you don't want to go back and he said i have been listening to tape hiss since i was 11 years old mm-hmm. i never want to hear it again yeah and i don't blame him. i mean i get it you know so that was his take on it <clears throat> and um i like to also it go back even a little bit further when we were talking about our our own approaches to recording at Sigma and recording industry and, and learning from people and everything. I got to tell you that the evolution I went through upon realizing what it took to make records like these, I, I come into Sigma, I'm naive, I, I, I'm my eyes are opened, I see how it's being done, I'm impressed at, at all that's happening around me. And at first going in, I thought, because a little bit of my rock and roll basics i thought i was going to be the engineer you know captain effects i was going to be i wanted to learn every little tricky effect there could possibly be and make some up myself and that was going to be my claim to fame all right i eventually st- sat back in that first six months or however long it was until i really got really grasped what we were doing in philly with the musicians and the orchestras and everything else we were doing and how how difficult it actually was to a Shakespeare would say, hold up a mirror to, to, to nature, to, to reality, just to capture all that happens in front of those mics to make one of these records. With, think about it, it. When I started there, as Arthur and will attest, it was only 16 track. So we only had 16 tracks to put, <clears throat> put down onto a final record, sometimes as many as a nine-piece rhythm section, orchestra, strings, you know, First violins, second violins, violas, cellos, a harp maybe, French horns, trumpets, trombones, you know, and then background singers like the OJs, two lead singers. Right. And then the three of them sing in harmony and doubled. And then maybe in like in the case of the spinners, we'd add the women on top. Right. So it was like all these layers and all this sound all at once just to capture it all and just be able to hear it all well and have it. You know, and this goes back to the talent, have it arranged well enough that it all works with itself. There's some records I remember d- making with people who didn't grasp it. They just thought more was better. And it was too much of the same thing going on. I remember mixing it, mixing it, mixing it, and you just couldn't get it to work. And eventually I took half of it out and said, What do you think of this? And they went, What did you do? And I said, You don't want to know. Because right. <laughs> I just took half of the people you paid out of the record and made it sound decent. You know, it was, you know, but when, like, but when a great arranger, like a Tom Bell or a Bobby Martin or or even you know Jack Faith or somebody, put all the right pieces in the right places relative to one another, right? Oh my God, then, then you know then it's just all this magic you got here.
0: Yeah, you just took out the guitarist I paid a thousand dollars for, uh, and, yeah.
1: and right. he was out of tune anyway. Thank you. It sounds terrific. <laughs> well, it was worth paying that money just to know that you didn't need them. Um, yeah, there you wait, go, well, Arthur. <laughs> well, well, you just basically. You know, the 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 trick, if you will, is to just do what's appropriate to the music, whatever that music is. And sometimes, uh, you know, y- y- like it, it ends up being some engineering and production tour de force, you know, where you really kind of, you know, create something in the studio that couldn't otherwise exist. And other times you just want to like, uh, you know, um, you know, put up some microphones and get some levels and hit record and, and, and kind of mess with it as little as possible. Right. Uh, Although again, it's just sort of like, yes, knowing what little things you do have to do, you know, is, is, is part of it. Um, And and then the other times it's just sort of like, no, we really need to like do something to, you know, to make this happen. Or like I said, it's just, I mean, there's records that are just, you know, don't like otherwise exist in any kind of like real reality i mean I, backing way up you know because uh, you know i i realized i didn't say a whole lot about like um my background and motivation before i got the job at and all that i mean it all kind of started with uh um you know well for a lot of people like sergeant pepper did it for me you sure. know, and, and it just to sort of like, oh, wow, this is what you can really do in a, in a studio and that sort of thing. And, and uh, you know, that was like really cool. Like years and years and years later, I got to meet, uh, you know, up in New York City, uh, like at a Spars event, like Jeff Emmerich, the engineer who did it. Right. And, you know, I you know, said, I want to shake your hand and either thank or blame you for getting <laughs> me involved in this, you know. It is sort of like, you know, it's kind of like a simultaneous thing, you know, and it just sort of like, no, it's your fault. Um, you know, it's our, or you inspired me and, and that sort of thing. But, uh, you know, that's, uh, you know, kind of what, uh, you know, first made me think that like, yeah, okay, this, this could, you know, being in a recording studio could be kind of a cool thing. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm like, like a lot of, uh, engineers, something of a, a, you know, failed musician, you know, I'm one of the self-professed worst guitar players on the planet and all that. But it was one of those things of like, well, it would be nice still to be involved with music and, and uh, you know, maybe I right. can learn this recording stuff and all. So, um, you know, that's kind of where, where, where that came from. And actually, you know, again, just the backing up the like, you know, kind of what pre Sigma for me was like, was that I, I think I actually first became aware of the studio, not so much from the sound of Philly records, although that followed almost immediately, but, um, you know, in, in, uh, the early seventies, I mean, the big thing then was like, uh, you know, for like, you know, your FM radio stations to be doing these live broadcasts out of recording studios, these radio right. concerts, and um sigma did like this series for wmmr in philadelphia including at least a couple like very famous performances uh, probably the biggest one being the billy joel right that really helped Brother to like sure. launch his career because it yeah. got like bootlegged and all That's of a sudden right. it was like oh you have always like, kind of had a hit record without actually having recorded it um you know there, there's the the bonnie Rate that like really was pretty big and getting her career started and things like that. And I heard those and it was like, oh, wow, there's a studio, you know, in the area that, uh, you know, is doing some really cool stuff. And then at about the same time, and it's like, okay, you you know, here's all the, you know, these spinners and OJs and and, and, uh, stylistics hits on the radio and realize, oh, those are coming out of Sigma too right you know so it was like wow there really is definitely something happening here
0: as you look at this box set you know what are some of your uh feelings about the work that
1: you put in on a lot of this these records well if you had told me 50 years ago that uh you know this music would would still be played you know like daily somewhere uh, you know, and 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 also to the point where they would be putting out these these retrospective, you know, box sets right. of like pretty much, you know, the whole catalog for for PIR at least. I wouldn't have believed you, right? Um, because it's kind of like okay, putting it in perspective in the okay, like in the early '70s when when that started, you know, okay, go back fifty years from there okay you're talking about the 1920s and okay there's still music from there that that's still important although not to the extent that you know again that that, you know 1970s uh, sound of philly stuff is today um you know some of that has to do with just the, the technology making it a lot more accessible but uh you know, because you know who who can play a 78 rpm record anymore right but uh that sort of thing you know so that that's what part of what debt did in the 20s but uh, no just that it's still being played today and is is still relevant and is still uh important to people and and people still like love it and right. and if you told me that back then, I probably wouldn't have believed you i didn't you know you know you're kidding me right um but uh yeah that's the thing that's that's so amazing and i guess you know if you're talking about a feeling of accomplishment that that you know that i was able to be part of that uh you know something that's lasted this long and will continue to go on from here uh you know there, there's definitely uh like i said a, a feeling of accomplishment in that right
2: well i have to say ditto right i agree with everything you just said um and you know and i look at this second box set and i see four of the eight cds on it i was on i worked on now this was before they started uh, giving us credits on those albums but i know which ones i worked on and i worked on a lot of the songs especially on the the last four and uh with joe as as his assistant and you know i'm really proud of it and i and, and i agree with him you know looking back i never would have thought that that it would be this big still. Right. And I'm glad about it. Except some at some points along the way I began to realize we were making some really important incredible records in terms of the pop culture.
0: Radar is produced by Evan Toth in partnership with WFDU 89.1 FM and the Vinyl District. You can hear Radar on WFDU 89.1
2: FM or anytime online at thevinyldistrict.com.